Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. The portion of Scripture to which I would like to call your attention this morning is found in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, reading verses 18 to 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus." for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. One of the best ways to meditate on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to repeat to yourself over and again his many names. I think of some of the names of Christ in the Old Testament. Shiloh, the prophet like unto Moses, the seed of the woman, the rose of Sharon, lily of the valleys, God's righteous servant, the branch, the Lamb of God, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Light of the world, Great Shepherd of the sheep, Bright and Morning Star. And we could go on and on and on. In fact, I suppose that we could just spend the entire time this morning repeating the different names and titles of Jesus in both Testaments of the Bible and probably take up the entire hour. But one of the most precious names given to the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture is this one in verse number 23. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Interestingly, besides two brief references in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. This is the only reference in the Bible to the name Emmanuel. It's a name that Jesus never called himself. No one else ever called Jesus Emmanuel when they approached him or conversed with him or addressed him. Only in Isaiah does it prophesy that his name shall be Emmanuel. And only here in the book of Matthew does it say that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, his name shall be called Emmanuel. But what a precious name this is. It affirms the glorious fact that since Christ was born, God is with us and God will be with us forever. 
Now, before we think of him as Emmanuel, I think it's important that we know that his name is Jesus, as verse 21 says. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, that's his proper name, his personal name, and the word Jesus means Savior. You see, before we think of him as God who is with us, it's important to think of him as the one that Jehovah sent to save his people from their sins. Salvation, in other words, is the bedrock. The gift of salvation is the foundation on which the entire superstructure of Christian faith and life is built. His name shall be Jesus, and there is not a more melodious name on mortal tongue than the name Jesus, is there? There's not a sweeter note in seraph's song than the name Jesus. Jesus, blessed Jesus. Indeed, that name is precious to the believer. And what it means is God is for us. You know that verse in Romans chapter 8 that says, If God be for us, who can be against us? How do you know that God is for us? Well, we know that because his name is Jesus. He sent Jesus to save us from our sins. And what better proof that God is for you than to know that he sent his son into the world to save poor sinners from their sins. Indeed, God is for us. But after we know that his name is Jesus, that God is for us, then I think it's very helpful for us to know that his name is Emmanuel, God is with us. God is for us in salvation, but God is with us in our service to him, in our Christian walk, and during the struggles of our lives, God is with us. Now, notice in the passage it says, his name shall be Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. If you were a Jew in the first century, you wouldn't need that interpretation. The interpretation is for us Gentiles. The Jews understood what Emmanuel meant. And I love what C.H. Spurgeon said about this passage. He asked the question, why should the word Emmanuel in the Hebrew be interpreted at all? He said it is to show that it has reference not only to the Jews, but to us Gentiles as well. And therefore, it must be interpreted into the chief language of the Gentile world at that time, which is the Greek. It shows that he is not the Savior of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. His name is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is, here's what it means, God with us. Now I want to make two basic points from this sublime name for the Lord Jesus this morning. And the first one is that Jesus is God. His name is God. Emmanuel means that he is God. Now I dare say that may seem like a no-brainer to many of us this morning, but there are many people in this world, and increasingly more so, who doubt the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people will come to my door with literature in their hand, and I always try to treat those people with respect and kindness, but I don't invite them into my house. 
because they'll go down the street and tell somebody else that the pastor let me into his house. But what I like to tell these people is that I believe Jesus is God because they don't believe that. In fact, they believe that he's a high-ranking angel, that he's really the same as Michael the archangel was in the Old Testament prior to the birth of Jesus. Michael the archangel and Jesus are one and the same. But when I say he's God, they will say, well, no, he's the son of God, but he's not God himself. But you know, there's an interesting passage in John chapter 5 where Jesus says that God is my father. And when he said that, the Jews picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Why would they stone him if he just said, I'm the son of God, if sonship did not equal God the Father? You see, in our way of thinking, when we say someone is the son of someone else, we think that he's subordinate or he's after. But in the Jewish mind, when Jesus said, I'm the son of God, the Jews understood that he was claiming coexistence. He was claiming to be co-substantial with the Father of the same essence and substance with the Father that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because they understood his claim to be the Son of God was a claim to be God himself. I want to say Jesus is God. Emmanuel means first God. And Jesus is properly named because he's not an angel. He is truly God. We know that there is a group of professing Christians that are based primarily in the state of Utah that teach that Jesus was a created being that he's the first of all God's creatures. And they actually teach, and they don't publicize this, that he's the elder brother of Lucifer. But you know, Jesus is not a created being. He's not an angel, but he is God. You see, the identity of Jesus is the bedrock of the Christian faith. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. What is the rock? on which the church stands or falls. It is the identity of Jesus Christ. For that statement comes on the heels of Peter's great confession when Jesus asked the question in Matthew 16, 13, whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And then he asked the disciples, whom do ye say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of the revealed truth that Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity past. Upon that rock, I will build my church. The great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said the most important and pressing question is whether a man as a civilized being can believe in the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But I suppose there have always been skeptics who do not believe that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. Denials of his heavenly identity, again, seem to be getting increasingly more and more prevalent and intense in the day and age in which we live. In his book, When Jesus Came to Harvard, Harvard theologian Henry Cox wrote, Jesus was not God, but yet he is still relevant to us today. So he's important, but he wasn't divine. He was instead, says this man, a spunky rabbi who spun enigmatic tales encouraging people to focus 
on collective action and nonviolent rebellion in order to improve their lot here on earth. By the way, that's basically the Unitarian view of the person of Christ, and it's basically the heartbeat of liberal theology. Jesus was focused on collective action and nonviolent rebellion. So he's very important for us today, but he wasn't, God, says this Harvard professor. Some people say Jesus is a legend, that it's all made up. But you know the historical evidence that a person named Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary from the first century, the historical evidence that he actually existed is so compelling and strong that no reputable historian would risk his reputation by denying that fact. Others would say that Jesus was a great prophet and teacher, like Muhammad or Confucius or the Dalai Lama. Still others would say that he was a humanitarian who devoted his life to helping people who were less fortunate. There are some that go further still and say that Jesus was one of the greatest, if not the greatest men who's ever lived, but they stopped short of ascribing godhood or deity to him. For instance, H.G. Wells said, I am a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Kenneth Scott Lotterette said, Jesus is the most influential man who ever lived on this planet. And the poet and infidel Ernest Renan said Jesus was the greatest religious genius that ever lived. Now these are high-sounding flowery words, but they still stop short of ascribing deity, godhood, to Jesus. Napoleon Bonaparte gets closer still to the true identity of Jesus. He said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person, in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius, he asks, upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. So people are still all over the map when it comes to the identity of Jesus. You know, when Jesus asked the disciples, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say that thou art Elias, Elijah, and some John the Baptist, and some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, I want you to notice how reputable, how trustworthy opinion polls are. Whom do men say? Let's take a poll of the public. What is public perception of the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? Whom do men say? It's all over the map. Some say he's an angel, and some say that he is a created being, and some say that he's a great religious guru or influencer, and still others say he is the greatest human being in history. But you know, the real question is not what do men say about Jesus, but it's what do you say about Jesus? But whom say ye that I am? And that's the question he would pose to every one of us this morning. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? We know that a man named Jesus of Nazareth actually lived some 2,000 years ago, but who really was he? He was human, yes. 
but he was more than a man. He was God and man simultaneously, the God-man. Two natures coexisting in harmony in one person, truly God and verily man. Yes, indeed, my friends, Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And that's what Bethlehem's story is all about. The babe born in Bethlehem was God come down to earth to visit this earth. And why did he come? Well, he says in John 6, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus came on a covenant assignment. God the Father had dispatched him in agreement with the everlasting covenant. He'd come to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of God? He goes on to explain, and this is the will of him that sent me, that of all which he's given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. He came to save the elect family of God. He came to save his people from their sins. You know, there are other verses in which he said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to die. He came to rescue. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. It's worthy for everyone to receive it, believe it, accept it. This truth is an axiom of Christian faith and dogma that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's why he was called Jesus. He came to save. He came to save. The man of Galilee was more than a man. There's an interesting repetition in Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2.9 that says, In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now imagine the babe in Bethlehem's manger, 18 inches long perhaps, maybe 19, maybe 21. Maybe he weighed 8 pounds and 2 ounces at birth. I mean, I don't know the details of that, but he was just a tiny bundle of joy. And I'll tell you, in that babe of Bethlehem, God was pleased to dwell fully. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Didn't he say that in John chapter 14 when he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You see, Jesus Christ is God, and he actually claimed to be God himself. Now, by the way, that's one of the criticisms that our friends will share with us when they knock on our doors and want to discuss religion or your relationship with God. They will say Jesus never claimed to be God. But I've already cited to you John chapter 5, where he said, I and my father are one, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And you know, in the first chapter of John's gospel, he says it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I don't know how you get any plainer than that. Of course, our friends will say, well, that's the way it reads in the English, but it doesn't read that way in the Greek. But if you get a Greek New Testament, it does read that way. In Theos, in Logos, the Word is God. The Word was God. Indeed, my friends, Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. In John chapter 19, verse 7, notice he received worship. When Thomas fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God, Jesus did not rebuke him and say, Don't worship me, but he received worship. Now, angels won't receive worship. 
In the first chapter of Revelation, when John fell at the angel's feet to worship him, he said, see that thou do it not. Worship God. You know, in the Gospel of John, seven times he says, I am. He uses the Old Testament title for God, the Tetragrammaton. What he literally said is, Ego Ami, that is, I am. It's the sacred name for God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And he says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Now I think that's interesting. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. But he said before Abraham was, past tense, I am present tense. And only God transcends time. Only God, my friends, can be in, in all places and at all times at the same time. <laughs> Jesus is the self-existent, eternally present creator God. He is God the Son come to this earth to do the will of the Father as his covenant assignment that he voluntarily assumed on our behalf before time ever began. So he is called God. He claimed to be God. He received worship. There's a verse in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, where in as clear a language as you can read anywhere, the Apostle Paul says, Concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. That language says very plainly that Christ is God. The one who came is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, God the Father says, Thy throne, O God, he's speaking to the Son, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And then in Titus 2.13, he says, We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the New Testament says he's God. We don't have three gods we're not saying the Father is one-third God and the Son is one-third God and the Holy Spirit is one-third God. We're saying that we have one God in three distinct persons. And by the way, if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, many of the conversations in the Bible are going to confuse you. For instance, Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our own image. It's as if God is having a conference Within the Godhead, he uses the word us. Genesis 11, let us go down and confound their languages. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said unto my Lord. Notice the intra-Trinitarian conversation taking place here. Or John 14, I will pray the Father and he will send the Holy Ghost, another comforter. You have the Son praying to the Father and the Father dispatching the Spirit as his great promise. So there are so many references to the Trinity. We even baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Notice the word name is singular. But then the conjunction and is put in there to remind us that there is a distinction of persons even though there's a unity of essence. That is, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and the formula there teaches us that the Trinity is best defined in terms of three distinct persons within the unity of one God. So that God is in one mind. The Father and the Son never disagree. The Holy Spirit is never on a separate page. They're all in one mind. 
God is one in attribute. The Father's a God of love. The Son is the Son of love. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of love. The Father is all-powerful. The Son is all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful or omnipotent. They're one in mind, one in attribute, one in glory, one in purpose. There's never any disunity or division within the Godhead. Now, Jesus, therefore, when he was upon this earth, is God manifest in the flesh. And that's a mystery. In fact, Paul calls it that in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And the word mystery of the various things that it, that word entails, it at least means this. There's more to it than we can comprehend with our finite mind. And it doesn't bother me that there are things about God that I can't completely explain and comprehend. If I could explain everything about Him, then He wouldn't be worthy of worship, would He? I can't even explain everything about myself. <laughs> I confuse me sometimes, and I sure can't explain everything about other people. You know, I'm constantly baffled at the decisions people make. But the fact is, my friends, I sure can't fully fathom and comprehend the incomprehensible God. And that's why I am glad to worship Him. Sometimes we just have to do like Job and put our hands over our mouth and worship Him in adoring silence. Jesus is God. You know, one of the proofs of His divinity or His deity is that over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament come to fulfillment. They converge all of these prophecies, over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament converge in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, Matthew's gospel, where we took our text this morning, is written to prove that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. That's why he says over and over again that it might be fulfilled which was written by the prophet. And he says that. You can look up the references to that expression in Matthew's Gospel, and you'll see that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was predicted of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Indeed, Sylvester Hassel said that Jesus of Nazareth is the only key in the universe that can unlock the intricate web of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. He's the only key that fits the lock and can open the door. I love the way that Elder Hassel said that. And if you still doubt his deity, look at the seven sign gifts in John's Gospel, where you have seven miracles. The book of John is often called the book of the seven signs. And there are seven miracles, the majority of which do not appear in the other Gospel records, in which Jesus establishes his dominance, his sovereignty over darkness and over death and over the devil and over the different elements of nature, John tells us these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And of course, the ultimate evidence that Jesus is more than a man, that he's God, is his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, this isn't an uncertain declaration. There's no ambivalence here. There's no uncertainty here. He says he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit puts his stamp. Here's proof positive that Jesus is who he said he was. 
who he claimed to be, that he came out of the grave on the third and appointed morning. So Jesus is God. But notice this name Emmanuel not only suggests that he is God, but it says that God is with us. And what a precious thought that is. Jesus is God, but he's also God with us. Now that, of course, was true when he was born in his incarnation, when he was enfleshed, when he assumed human nature. God came to be with us. And for 33 and a half years, Jesus is God in the presence of his people. God visiting his creation. God with us. Isn't that amazing? An amazing thought that God visited his creation. He didn't just stand back at a distance as some kind of remote deity, but he invaded the arena of history. He made his entrance onto the stage of history. And you would think that he would make that entrance with great fanfare and celebration, pomp and ceremony. But you know, he made his entrance onto the stage of history in a very obscure way. He came to a little town called Bethlehem. And there wasn't a great trumpet blast and fanfare and the rolling out of the red carpet, but he was born in a barn in an ox stall, and he was laid not in a beautiful linen or velvet bassinet, but he was laid in a feeding trough called a manger. And his parents were poor. In fact, they were so poor that when it came time to offer the sacrifice that the law prescribed, they couldn't afford a lamb. They brought two turtle doves and a pigeon, one of the provisions that God had given in the law for poor people to be able to make their sacrifices. They brought two turtle doves and a young pigeon. You say, and a partridge and a pear tree, I doubt it. But anyway, two turtle doves and a young pigeon because they were poor. Indeed, my friends, God is with us in Bethlehem. God was with us in the personal life and ministry of Jesus. But I want to tell you, this name also applies to every one of us here this morning who lived 2,000 years after that divine visitation to this planet. You see, Jesus is not with us anymore physically, is he? There's no place you can go and find Jesus in a physical body on this planet today. In fact, his physical body is in heaven today, glorified. You remember when he came out of the grave, he said, Behold my hands and my feet. He still had the scars in his hands and in his feet where he had been crucified. And he said, Thrust your hand, Thomas, into my side and see that it is I myself. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Now, he's a real human still. He's our man in heaven. You know where you need a man, not in Washington, D.C. or in Rome? Somebody says, oh, our man in Rome or our man in Washington. I want to tell you where we need a man. We need a man in heaven. And he is the man Christ Jesus who ever lives to make intercession for us, the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, and he's still that today. He's there in a glorified body, and my beloved, you and I are going to follow him one day. When these bodies are resurrected and changed and made like unto his own glorious body, and we too in body, soul, and spirit will be with him on that great morning of the resurrection, we'll be with him forevermore in that upper and better world. 
What wonderful news that is to us this morning. Jesus is not here physically, but he is still with us. He is still Emmanuel to us today because he's promised to us his abiding presence. What we have in this name is the precious promise of his abiding presence until time will be no more. You remember what he said in Matthew 28, verse 20, right before he ascended back to heaven? He said, Go ye into all the world, and teach all nations, and baptize the believers. For lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I want to tell you, dear friends, that promise is still true today. He said that to his disciples, and then he left. You say, well, I thought he was going to be with us always. He is still with us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who's been sent now as Christ's agent to the church. Interestingly, in John chapter 14, verse 16, he says in his final sermon before he went to the cross, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. Notice the word another. It means another of the same kind. That is precisely the same kind of ministry that Jesus fulfilled to his disciples for three and a half years. The Holy Spirit will be that to the believers, to the church, until resurrection morning. Another comforter. And the word comforter means one who stands at your side. One who's with you. I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He's still Emmanuel. God with us, even the spirit of truth, he says, whom the world cannot receive. By the way, did you know we have something and know something that the rest of the world as a whole does not understand? The presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's a reality. Jesus said, I'll give it to you, whom the world cannot receive, for it knoweth him not, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Is Christ still with us today? He is in this sense that the Holy Spirit has been sent to mediate Christ's presence to the church until the redemption of the purchased possession, until resurrection morning, the Holy Spirit mediates Christ's presence in a very real sense to the church so that when he's with us, we can say, the Lord was with us today. Have you ever left a meeting and you thought the Lord was in this place? God was with us. Emmanuel was here. This is Emmanuel's land. Emmanuel was here. Well, he was here not physically. He wasn't here through some dream or vision or apparition, but he was here through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit who came as Christ's agent to the church. And he says, he shall be with you. And you know, if that promise wasn't true, I'd have no reason to try to preach. Because there's no possible way that anybody would ever be interested in what I said or that what I said would ever make any impact upon their lives. If I didn't trust that the Holy Spirit can attend the word spoken and make it real in the hearts of the hearers. You know, I preach in black and white, but the Holy Spirit can paint the picture in technicolor so that you lose sight of the preacher and you're actually enthralled with the subject, the grand theme that is being discussed. And at that point, may I say something supernatural is taking place in the church. The Holy Spirit is manifesting the presence of Christ 
to us. I will be with you. That's his promise. Do you think God has ever broken a promise? Do you think Jesus is unfaithful? I'll tell you, dear friends, when he said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world, you can count on that. You can bank on it. You can depend on it. It's still true today. He is Emmanuel, God with us, even today. The Lord had promised Joshua when he was called to take the mantle from Moses. Now, can you imagine following Moses in pastoral ministry? <laughs> Sometimes I've thought if I was ever called to follow a, a pastor that was just so gifted and so influential, I wonder if I would be up to the task. And I have to tell you, I feel my own shortcomings. Can you imagine though being called to follow Moses? as the leader of the nation. Moses had led the nation out of Egypt and for 40 years in the wilderness. And now Moses dies and Joshua is to take his place. But God comforts and consoles Joshua with this promise, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid for the, the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. God will be with you. Yes, my friends, what a precious promise this is. And I want to apply the message this morning in these few ways. His name is Emmanuel because he will be with you in the struggles of life. I love that promise in Isaiah 41 verse 10 that says, Fear not, for I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You may know there's a hymn in our hymn book that is taken from that verse, and it's that wonderful old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Fear not. Don't be afraid, child of God, for his name is Emmanuel. I will be with thee. I love Isaiah 43 too. When thou passest through the waters. Now maybe somebody this morning is there. You're walking through the chilly waters of affliction and trial and difficulty. The struggles of life are heavy. God says, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. What a precious promise that is. I don't know if I'm speaking to a young family here today who is struggling to make ends meet. I know that those burdens, financial burdens, can be very heavy. Or maybe you're not a young family, but you're still struggling to make ends meet. And you feel the weight of the world, as it were, upon your shoulders. I want to tell you, He will be with you. He's promised to do such. And you can depend on it. Or maybe you're having struggles in relationships. Perhaps a marriage relationship or a friendship. Or maybe you're having a struggle with your children or with your parents. I want to tell you, dear friends, He's promised to be with you in the struggles of life. And he's also promised to be with his people in the sorrows of life. In the 23rd Psalm, in the fourth verse, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. His name is still Emmanuel as you pass through the deep valley of affliction. And his name is still Emmanuel as you walk in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. How many of you have gone through the 
veil of sorrows. You've shed your tears. You've had your deep grief, your bereavement. You felt the sting of death. It's been the most challenging experience of your life, but yet as you walked the veil of sorrow, you can look back today with 2020 hindsight and see that He was indeed with me through the whole process. Indeed, that's His name. Emmanuel, God with us. He's God, but He's God with us. There's majesty in this name. He's God, but there's mercy as well. He's with us in the midst of life's many sorrows. And I'll tell you, He will be with you not only in the struggles of life and in the sorrows of life, but in your service to Him in the church. I love a little expression at the end of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, verse 20. It says, Then the disciples went everywhere preaching the word, the Lord working with them. That is our hope for success in the church, is that He would indeed work with us. We're not sufficient in ourselves. As Paul says in the second Corinthian letter, to fulfill this ministry, our sufficiencies of God. We need His presence. We need His help. We need His sustaining grace. But as you go forward preaching, as you go forward ministering at a backstage level, as you go forward trying to live the Christian life, I want to tell you in your service to Christ, you say, Brother Mike, I just don't know if I can resist temptation and continue on. Sometimes I get discouraged. Sometimes I feel like I'm alone. I get the Elijah syndrome. Lord, they've killed all your prophets and I only remain. I'm telling you, dear friends, with God on your side, one plus God is a majority. You know, He's promised to be with you. One plus God is a majority. And you can fulfill your commission knowing that He will be with you in your service to Him. The Apostle Paul once was getting quite discouraged when he was at Corinth, Acts chapter 18. But the Lord appeared to him at night and said, Be not afraid, Paul, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Now I'll tell you, that's a verse that teaches sovereign election. God already had a people. And by the way, it teaches also irresistible grace. He had a people that He had chosen they were His. I have much people. And there were people that had been prepared to receive the message. We know that the new birth is necessary before a person can respond to the gospel. So God says to Paul, don't quit. Don't give up. For I am with you. And I have much people in this city. I believe God has many children ready to hear the liberating message of salvation by grace alone in our area as well, my beloved. And though sometimes we become weary and we get discouraged and we lose heart, my beloved, keep following Jesus. You say, well, what shall this man do? His answer to you is, what is that to thee? You follow me. doesn't matter what somebody else is doing, but you keep walking in the path that you've been taught in, that you've been convicted of, that you have been assured of. And he says, I will be with you. I'll be with you, Brother Goins, when you mount the sacred desk and try to preach on a week-in and week-out basis to this little band of believers here at Bethel Church. I'll be with you, young couple, as you seek to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'll be with you, aged saint, as you face the uncertainties of the future and the breakdown of your physical capacities. I will be with you in your service to me 
Whatever your circumstances may be, my friends, I want to remind you this morning, His name is Emmanuel, God with us. You know the Apostle Paul, when he came to the end of his life, he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, At my first answer, no man stood with me. Now you want friends, and what a blessing it is to have friends, but Paul says, when it came crunch time for me to appear before the authorities, when my court date arrived, the people that said I'll be there for moral support, I'll be there to give my voice as a witness in your favor, Brother Paul, he said they didn't show up. And by the way, people may have the best of intentions, but they have feet of clay. and Their arms are too short and they'll let you down. Sometimes unintentionally. And by the way, we'll also let other people down. Paul says, people let me down. But he said, I pray that God would not lay it to their charge. Howbeit the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known. Paul says, even though preacher helps all failed, yet God did not fail me. He was with me. And finally, I would say this morning, he will be with you forever in heaven. I love the 21st chapter of Revelation. It's a passage that is very appropriate at a funeral, and it's appropriate, my friends, as our world gets increasingly dark and ungodly, as he talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem that's coming down from God out of heaven, the spiritual city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He's still with us in heaven. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. Three times in that verse. He says, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. Once to the Father, and once to the Son, and once to the Holy Ghost. I will be with you. God will dwell with us and be our God, and God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 24, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is being with Jesus where he is and beholding his glory. This name, Emmanuel, is a cordial, bringing solace to the struggling child of grace as he journeys through this world. Just before he died on March the 2nd, 1791, John Wesley suddenly opened his eyes after several days of being virtually comatose. He suddenly opened his eyes and exclaimed with a strong and clear voice these last words, The best thing of all is, said Mr. Wesley, God is with us. And then he closed his eyes and he died. The name Emmanuel carried him through his life and even as he crossed the last river of death, he found comfort to know that the Lord is with us. His name is Emmanuel, my friends. God with us. Amen.